Hello and welcome to We Came From The 80s, the podcast where we talk about movies we thought were cool. I'm your host, Farron, and today I'm joined by someone who is a human by night and a hawk by day. Hello, Heather. I wish. That'd be awesome. You know, that's assuming I got to retain my memories of my human half. Yeah, that's that's the kicker, isn't it? So <laughs> we're talking about Lady Hawk, which premiered on the 12th of April, 1985, and it was directed by Richard Donner. So kind of a big name. He did uh, Superman the movie. He did Superman 2, but was fired from it. And so they had someone else, another Richard something, did it. So the version you've seen is only about 50% Richard Donner. I actually saw the Richard Donner cut. They released it as a DVD about 12 years ago. And it's just like a slower, more boring version of the movie. It's kind of unfortunate. He did all the Lethal Weapon movies. He did The Omen. So, you know, this guy's got some oomph behind him. Uh, He's long since passed, actually. So the writers are Edward Kamara, Michael Thomas, and Tom Mankiewicz, based on a story by Edward Kamara. But according to IMDb, there's an uncredited screenplay credit, (laughs) David Webb Peoples. And if he's uncredited, that means he was a script doctor. And this, Um, yeah, this movie has the feeling of someone, you know, they had it, but they didn't quite have it. I wonder if David Webb Peoples is the, the reason why there's some really nice poetry in this movie some of the dialogue is really i'm not sure how to put it it's like next level yeah you know, like the movie's yeah. chugging along at a at, at normal and then all of a sudden there's really good poetry yeah like there's a really good line or a really good exchange usually it's just a line like sometimes yeah. it's something simple like when um when uh philippe the mouse played by matthew broderick Ma- matthew when he it. says if you lay one hand on her you will find it on the ground next to your head now right on it's a really good line, but there's a bunch of them like that. Like, uh, you know, another one, the first time he encounters Michelle Pfeiffer's character, Isabeau, he says, are you flesh or are you spirit? And she responds, I'm sorrow. That's a that really, yeah, that's a really good line. And there's a bunch of them like that. And there's some great symbolism in there that I know didn't come from Richard Donner. <laughs> you know, like the, the nightmare where, uh, you know, the, the bishop wakes up and he's frightened. And what do we see? The, the silhouette of the cross ironic yeah. you know things like that like it's clear someone came in and punched this script up, script up a bit i wish they'd done it a little more but i'm wondering if that if that's what david webb peoples was all about so it stars matthew broderick as philippe the mouse rutger hauer as navarre interestingly enough he was not originally cast for the part it was kurt russell which would have been a horror show imagine kurt russell in the lead role for this but he no, left in the middle of no, and I think that's why he left in the middle of rehearsals. They realized it wasn't going to work. That happened with um, Viggo Mortensen, right? With uh, with Fellowship of the Ring. Did it? He, yeah, he Ooh, was not the did, original yeah. choice. Yeah, it was some. It was someone else, and they realized it just wasn't working. And so he came in, and the next day he shot. Yeah, because like, he was Aragorn. Yeah, he was fantastic. The other guy, I forget who it was, but it just, everyone agreed it wasn't working. But that also happened with Aliens, right? Michael Bean was not the first choice for Hicks. And in fact, there are a couple of scenes where uh, Hicks is in the background and it's the other actor. Like when he's asleep in the carryall where they're going down to the planet, it's actually the other actor. So this does happen. And Rutger Hauer was chosen because he was available. I thought he was fabulous, but I like him as an actor anyway. And Michelle Pfeiffer as Isabeau. I happen to think this movie was excellent. Like really, I, I would almost argue perfectly cast. No one else could have pulled this off, but these three did. 
Uh, Philippe the Mouse could have been absurd, but Matthew Broderick at that point was already a Broadway star. He's a hell of an actor. It's shocking we haven't done movies with him. I want to do Glory. I want to do Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He's incredible. Anyway, this was rated PG. It cost $20 million to make, Ooh. and it made 18.4. Oops. Yeah. So that's kind of a bummer. But, you know, I had seen this film... Oh, wow. I mean, I've seen it dozens of times. I adore it. I haven't looked to see if there's a director's commentary on the DVD that I own, but I really should because I love it. I saw this on Super Channel as, you know, like most of the other films of the 80s. But how about you? Couldn't tell you. Okay. Actually, when you suggested it, I thought I had never seen it. Okay. And then when it started and I'm like, oh, I have. Uh, <laughs> where? <laughs> The, the I, face I you're know. making, it was it is it was it a good memory? I mean, did you like the film? Well, yeah, you know, it was it was it was very 80s, slightly cheesy, lots of hair. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I liked it. It was I can't I can't explain why, but I did. Yeah, I um for me it's the romanticism. I like the story, I like the idea of it, of the curse, and I love the way John Wood played the bishop. He is menacing in a way that's not ridiculous. Like he's not flapping his cape, twisting his, twirling his mustache and going, Wah-ah-ah-ah. but he's the evilest motherfucker I think we've encountered in a movie. Yeah. He plays a, f- a fallen bishop very well. Yeah. And I really like that. And, you know, Alfred Molina, who of course we encountered, uh, <laughs> he's the guy, you know, he's the one who steals the idol from, uh, from Indy. And that goes super well for him. Uh, this guy's never in movies long and it always ends badly for him. Darts through the head or his neck getting caught in a, you know, in a wolf trap. This man, oh man, he's back in the movies. Of course, he's in the new Spider-Man film playing Doc Ock from Spider-Man 2 from the 2000s, which I, I would argue is still one of the most interesting um, comic book villains in any of these comic book movies. He's because he's a good actor. Like he's a serious actor. He did a good Doc Ock. Yeah. Yeah, and here, I mean, he plays like a wolf hunter. He, I mean, the guy dresses like, like he's practically a, you know, like a caveman. But you know, he did the part okay, I guess. But everyone was so good in this movie. I didn't think anyone was over the top. At least I didn't think so. Rutger Hauer yeah, I, was. I, I really enjoyed the acting. Yeah. But at first, it was a bit stiff. Yeah. Um. But as they as it as it got going, like after the characters were all introduced and they're interacting yeah. with each other, they got really good. Yeah. And um, yeah. I like the drunk priest. He was Yeah. Funny. And he's a uh, Rumpole of the Bailey from the same actor. It's my it's an old PBS oh, okay. show from Great Britain that my parents used to watch. Okay, I don't know it, but I I'm sure I've seen the actor before. But he was great. I mean uh, Imperious was the name of the uh, the character. You know, there's really only a handful of 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 parts in this film there you know that have any meaning. Like the captain of the guard, he's just a jerk. Like he, there's nothing about. I don't even remember his name, um, the new captain of the guard. But he, he doesn't matter. He's just there to be a dick. But all the other characters, they're interesting characters. Isabeau is not an '80s girl. Not she's at not all. a. She's not a fleshed out character either, but she's a storybook character. She is beauty. She is, she's, she's attributes of what, like, when I say she is beauty and she is love and she is purity, it's because she's attributes. She's not a person. You know what I mean? Like she, it's what she represents, but 
she plays it very well and it's never oh give me a break you know what she reminded me of she's like something she's like a character you'd encounter like in an like in the lady of shallot like in an alfred lord tennyson poem yeah uh, you know yeah, she she's was an kind, idea she's not a person she's an idea yeah, that's the perfect way to put it yeah she's an idea and, and and in many ways so is navarre played by rutger hauer he is he is stoic he is devout and devoted he is all these things there's not much to him we have no idea like he's at the point where all he is is this quest which is vengeance yeah and it's... to the point you know to the point where he's given a solution and he's so focused he doesn't believe it mostly because he feels betrayed well, by Imperius. but you know yeah. it takes a while like it takes a while when he realizes people are getting hurt trying to save him you know like after the night in the lake where uh, philippe gets slashed on the back and I really like that. I like that these are all archetypes. Mm -hmm. um, and I think they're all played super well. My only issue was Philippe's conversations with God. Like he narrates. So he so Matthew Broderick has someone to talk to when there's no one around to talk to. And so he can be funny. But I never got the impression he actually believed. You know what I mean? Mm, like, I don't know. I, I've done it. I talk to God when I'm like. But you're a believer, I mean, and I, I never believed please. that Philippe was, other than in the most abstract sense. Like, I never I got the know. impression he was actually talking to God. I think he was. You, you, th you think so? Okay. Yeah. Um, that's fair. I mean, you'd probably he's be challenging God, but he, he's not an unbeliever just because he's challenging God. Oh, I didn't have an issue with the challenging. It just sounds like he's taught, like, I felt like the character was talking out loud so he could talk out loud. So we'd, mm. we'd have we, we'd be able to listen to dialogue without having a second character in the scene. You know, like you sort of wonder in the in the original draft of this, where the was it like Philippe and someone else who played off each other? You know what I mean? Like I, yeah. but like talking I to God doesn't have to be big fancy prayer shit. It can be no, oh no. shit, I've done it again. <laughs> Hello, uh, I did it again. Catch. Yeah, I, I just I don't know. It, it's just I I didn't find it believable that he that he actually believed he was talking to anyone other than himself. Yeah, um, but enough. but again, that's me. It struck me as odd, and maybe it's because I'm a heretic. I don't know. But uh, what did you think of the music? <laughs> <laughs> it was so 80s, it hurt. Yeah, yeah, it was dead. <laughs> it was so bad. Yeah, you know, I actually liked Isabeau's music. like the the choice of notes and there are times near the end where it is appropriate instruments but at the beginning with the guitars and the drums You know what it's you know when it plays in the beginning, you know what it sounded like? The intro to a late 80s sitcom or a kids show, like a kids adventure show. Like if Lady Hawk had been a an 80s show the way Knight Rider was, this would have been the music for it. Manimal. <laughs> wow. 
Remember? Yes. Yeah. Oh, unfortunately, I do. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's but, it's uh, it's part of the reason I had a hard time taking it it seriously at the beginning. Yeah, the music is is wildly inappropriate, and apparently Donner got the idea while scouting for locations, and he was listening to an album, and he thought this is the kind of music I want for it. And the, and clearly, as he was doing his scouting and hearing this music over and over again, it's sort of locked in. And no one, I'm guessing no one could shake him loose from that because someone really should have because <laughs> the music is awful. Again, the Isabeau's, uh, like at the very, especially at the end when in the church, it's beautiful. The, like Isabeau's theme is nice, but when they jazz it up and rock and roll it, it's just, ugh. Yeah. you know, whereas in A Knight's Tale where they literally played rock and roll, it worked because they didn't pretend. I mean, when they were doing medieval dancing to, like golden years by David Bowie, they're not even pretending. So it's, it's totally funny worked. and it, and it worked or when they're, you know, they're waiting for the joust to start and they're all pounding out. We will rock you. It worked because it's not even plausible. They're not even pretending. They said, this is cool. Let's go with it. Yeah. Um, by the by the way, that was an accident. They were kind of trying to keep the extras entertained while they fixed a camera. So they had them all <laughs> doing, we will rock you. And it looks so good. They decided to film it. Uh, and because they were trying to get this camera working and it occurred to them after let's do the whole movie like this and it worked here they went with a rock and roll 80s soundtrack and it was a crash and burn um i would love to have seen a director's cut of this movie but of course richard richard donner has passed and unfortunately they're making another lethal weapon mill gibson will be directing it i'm uh, i'm not looking forward to that but anyway yeah but I, I tried watching lethal weapon i figured we'd do it and maybe we will but it's a bad film they're just not good films. i like lethal weapon you know i did as a kid as well i don't find they hold up all that well they're very 80s cop movies so we, we will have to do I, one but i, I want to do I that with Ramy. seen it in like 20 years but i did yeah. i do remember liking it we'll have to do it with Ramy once uh, everything yeah. calms down yeah, so yeah so Let's sort of dig in and, and go through this and see what we see and what we hear in this the funky music and uh, and go from there. So it starts off with a title sequence, right? Where you it's sort of you see the 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 word Lady Hawk pass in front of the camera, and whether you're looking when you're looking through the letters, you're seeing this gorgeous orange sunset. And when you see between the letters, it's a full moon, as you would expect for this movie. It's pretty cool. Again, the music is bad, but it's a neat title sequence. But again, it reminds me of like an 80s adventure show. It's like, this is what you make for the ABC 8 o'clock hour action adventure show for kids. I wasn't that impressed with it, but it's good enough, I suppose. And then we come to a wall. We can hear Matthew Broderick speaking and... It's sort of, we got sort of three different scenes going. We got the wall and we can hear the talking. We've got the guards up top hanging people because it's medieval Europe. So, of course, this takes place in a fictional city called Aquila. I thought for some reason maybe it was real. I looked it up. There is a city in Italy called La Aquila, but it was built in like the 1800s. And there's Aquila City in Texas. And I don't think this takes place in either of those places. Um, Isn't there a constellation, uh, Aquila the Eagle? I don't know, to be perfectly honest. Um, Pretty sure there's a constellation Aquila, and it's a right. some kind of bird of prey. Anyway. But this is, uh, yeah. So this is, you know, the French city of Aquila. They never say France, but it's pretty. It's pretty clear. Everyone's got oh, French names. Very, you know, very clear. Uh, it's French. Though I'm pretty sure they filmed this in Italy just to look at the, you know, just the the scenery looks very Italian. And 
So they're hanging people. And then we, at the same time, there's clearly some sort of, you know, the bishop is holding some sort of service and they're hanging people. And the captain of the guard says, go get, you know, the Philippe Gaston, the one they call the mouse. And it sort of comes down that they go into the cell. He's not there. And the other uh, cellmate says, well, he escaped down the drain, which is like this super small enclosure. And, 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 you know, the guard says, well, no one could go through that. And then we go back to the earthen wall and this tiny little hole gets punched through and Philippe the mouse squeezes his way through. This was filmed when Matthew Broderick was, I, you know, I think he was like 16 or so. He clearly had not filled out as a man yet because he's he was like pretty skinny, right- yeah. Yeah, he's like, he's got that 14-year-old boy skinny look to him. Um, so, yeah, he squeezes out. And the whole idea is that he's a, you know, he's an escape artist. He escapes through the sewers. And then we, you know, the, the captain of the guard goes to the bishop and says, well, he's escaped. And, you know, the bishop, this is where we start to realize this guy's kind of a monster. He says, no one escapes the prisons of Aquila. That is something everyone knows. You know, he makes it quite clear. You need to find this guy. You need to find him now. So it's a call out the guards sort of scene. Everyone rides off. We see Philip Gaston is talking to God as he goes through this. And it's like, you know, God, I promise if you let me out of here, I'll be, you know, I'll, I'll be good and all that sort of stuff. And then he, you know, he pickpockets a guard. Uh, oh, I, I know God. I said I'd be good you know, 30 seconds ago, but it takes money to start a new life. It's like, this is maybe why I think I don't believe that he's talking to God because it's more about explaining to the audience what he's doing. But yeah. Yeah, I wasn't really fully committed at this point either. I'm like, oh, yeah. yeah. Cheesy. Check the boxes. Yeah, I mean, it's... Is it good it, if it, I survive? I survived! I don't have to be good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, um, you know, Matthew Broderick has great comedic timing. He learned that on Broadway. He's an impressive actor. He's one of these actors, I don't think he's ever actually won in a, like an Academy or, or a, I think he's won a bunch of Tonys, but... He's just a solid, seriously trained actor, so he does comedy really well. You know, a lot of comedic actors, they're just hilarious on their own, but he does it because he's trained to do it well. There's a difference. Mm-hmm. You can see it. So he sort of wanders to this tavern, and of course, he's got all this money. He says, give me your best drink. And, and the same for anyone who will join me in a toast. Let's hear your toast. We drink to a special man, my friend. Someone who has been inside the dungeons of Aquila and lived to tell the tale. Then you drink to me a little, man. I have seen those dungeons. A blacksmith, perhaps? A carpenter? A stonecutter, even? But a prisoner from inside Aquila? I didn't say I was a prisoner. And the, and the other guy pulls, you know, pulls a, <laughs> uh, his cloak off and it's, you know, it's his helmet. He's the captain of the guard. By the way, I really <laughs> like the costumes. I love those helmets. With well, the, football helmets? Well, they're kind of football helmets, but they got that that metal grid in front, kind of like a knight's grid, or actually, frankly, like Snake Eyes from GI yeah. Joe. But I think they're so. I think they're cool. I thought they were really, really neat. Um, <laughs> I thought they were super hokey. I loved them. I got a kick out of them. I like the. Co- I really like the costumes in this movie. I really liked them all. I mean, most of it's you know guys in burlap sacks because it's medieval Europe, but um, which is entirely true. But yeah, if you were super poor, probably you wore a lot of burlap. And there's uh, this sort of this ongoing action sequence where Philippe tries to escape from this horde of guards in an open air tavern. And mostly what it is, is he's he's slippery, you know? Yeah, quick and agile and hard to grab. And, yeah. yeah. In the meantime, we've been giving hints up to this point or, you know, the movie has that some rider in black is attracted by the ringing of the bells. 
you know, that, you know, it's essentially to call out the guards and mm-hmm. we see or sort of see him a few times. And here he sort of appears when they finally catch Philippe and they say, kill him. And the, uh, the guard with the sword winds up with an arrow in his shoulder. And we see Navarre has got this crazy ass. Yeah. Double two crossbow. shot crossbow. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and is, fortunately, the guys on the other team with crossbows are ancestors of the stormtroopers, apparently. Yeah, they can't hit shit. One thing you'll note at this point is that all the bad guys are dressed in white and the good guys are all dressed in black. Yeah. yeah. It's a cute little, it's, you know, it's simple. It's not meant to be a deep thing, but it's like, it's exactly the opposite of what you expect. Of course, the bishop's in white, but Navarre is in black head to toe, which is interesting because Rutger Hauer is very white. Like yes, he's got this, he's got very like his his hair is so blonde it's practically white. He's very pale naturally. If you've ever seen pictures of him from you know from his older years, he's practically translucent. Yeah. And here he is, blackhead to toe. He's like what Dutch or something, or Swedish or. Rutger Hauer, I thought he was German. He's European he's of some nature. He's, he's, yeah, he's northern he's northern European for sure. He's, something he's like, yeah yeah he's so white he's transparent. Yeah, but he's good. Like he's really good. I mean, Very good. You know, he was, we haven't done Blade Runner, but he played Roy Batty. You know, I've seen yeah. things, you know, the, the fame, probably the most famous line of 80 sci-fi is that, you know, that speech of his. And I like that here he plays very much the same sort of character. He doesn't scream. He's not a lunatic. He's not, he doesn't over emote. He's very calm. Yeah. And the guards recognize him. They call him captain. So, you know, we realize he's the old captain of the guard. The new captain doesn't really think all that much of him. So he literally pushes like another guard goes to meet Navarre and the new captain pushes him onto Navarre's sword. Like, you, you I don't know. I, yeah, well, I mean, I guess he figures, you know, he's worried that, uh, you know, these guards might turn on him and go back to Navarre because it, it happens at the end, right? The guards let him through. You know, Navarre fights off the guards. He's got this big ass sword, but mostly he just uses, you know, a, 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 some chains. <laughs> he uses a, a, a log from the fire. He's, I mean, his crossbow is done, but, you know. He, he fights smart. Yeah. yeah and he's, um, he's disabling, not killing where he can. That's true. Yeah, that's and, true. Uh, like these used to be his men. Yeah. And that's the thing. And he Before clearly evil still- and corruption took them. Yeah, and, and, and they clearly still like him, and he likes them. And yeah, he doesn't want to kill them. Uh, though, you know, you strike a guy across the face with uh, an iron chain, and that's uh, going to do some damage. You're going to be, you're going to have a Kentucky smile when that's over. And one thing you'll notice is that he's not agile. I think this movie were made today, it'd be like this hyper-kinetic, almost kung-fu-like sword fight. Errol Flynn, yeah. Yeah, almost going back to the Errol Flynn, but worse. Because Navarre, like, when he fights, part of it is his costume, but... He's slow mm-hmm. and he's heavy. Like you get the impression that you can dodge him, but if you don't, you're going to pay for it. Yeah. Like he's sort of slow and lumbering. And, and, and the sword he has is, is a bad, it's called a bastard sword or a great sword. It's this monstrous two handed beast that, you know, you could use to sort of, you know, cut an elephant in half. Like, I mean, obviously not, but you know, like he's just, he's slow. And I like that the, the fight is clumsy. Mm-hmm. Like none of these guys is an expert. I mean, Navarre is clearly a great fighter, but no one like the fight seems realistic. And I really appreciated that, you know, Richard Donner isn't the flashy director, but he's a good director and he didn't let this get silly the way 
Princess Bride sword fights got silly or, you know, like it's not, it's not, well, as you put it, it's not Errol, Errol Flynn. Yeah. So I really like that. So Navarre sort of heads off on his big ass horse and catches up with Philippe and they sort of ride off. So at some point they find some shelter in a, oh, that's right. It's the, it's the farm that's next. Yeah. They come up on a farm with that weird wife. That weird yeah, fat chick. What is she, up with her? She's so weird. Like she, she never speaks. She goes me, 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 me. Like it, it's. You know what she reminded me of? Like a fat female beaker from you yeah. know the Muppets. Like, like she. We'll spend the night here. Yeah, like she's really Let's go with that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, she freaks out, hides behind her husband who, I mean, I'm guessing they're, like, I'm guessing husband's a woodcutter or something, because it's not farmland, they're in the middle of the forest. Um, Lots of axes around. Yeah, so Navarre asks for, you know, can we have lodging for the night? He says no. Philippe flashes his purse and says we're happy to pay. He says you can stay in the barn. Uh, they go into the barn, and Navarre opens his saddlebags, and inside is his helmet, and it's the same as the captain of the guard's helmet, so... Now we know the deal here. Well, at least we think we know the deal here. You know, the thing with this movie is they marketed it and they did not hide the curse. Like, they, that was a big part of it. It's not meant to come as a surprise. And the marketing lied and said it's based on a real medieval legend. For the record, it is not. Yeah, no, um, it is super not. But it's cool. I just, I just hope that Gaston learns not to flash his purse around. That's twice now. Yeah, you know, he's an idiot. Keep it, he's, keep it down, man. Yeah, you'd think that uh, a guy known as Philippe the Mouse, known for escaping prisons, would A, get better at not getting, you know, arrested, and B, would be a better and smarter thief, but clearly not. But uh, it's funny because he's never made to pay for the fact that he keeps making the same mistake. But, you know, whatever. It's a two-hour two action film. You know, at least this movie, you know, we've talked a few times about this movie needed that extra half hour. This movie mm -hmm. has it, just like Willow did. Yes. They really yeah. did take the time to to examine in detail the torment that Ivar and Isabeau undergo and how that was caused by Imperius and how Imperius suffers on his own and Philippe trying to figure all of this out. Like, Philippe is us, right? Like, he's the one who doesn't fit. Everyone else here is a an idea. They're an archetype in a, in a tragic poem. And Philippe is not, because we're Philippe. Yeah, you know? he's, we're, he's watching this. Yeah. Yeah, like, he's, he's like us. He's the flippant, cool kid who wanders into this tragedy and wants to help, even if he doesn't really understand it. And I really like that. And if you notice, he becomes more serious as the movie moves on. He becomes yeah. less silly because he realizes yeah, he's, yeah. he starts to understand the stakes and he becomes part of the poem. And I keep referring to this as a poem because it sounds like a poem to me. It plays like a, a tragedy, a romantic tragedy to me. It is. Um, if, if it was an iambic pentameter, it would even fit better. Yeah, it reminds me of a poem called The English Lady in the Night, which you should absolutely look up. Lorena McKennett does a great musical rendition of it, of just about this guy who marries, uh, like the Scottish knight marries a woman, and her brother is jealous, and he poisons his sister rather than let his sister marry this Scottish knight. The Scottish knight kills the dude and then goes off to Palestine to fight you know, in the Crusades, and he dies. That's the poem. And it's got that feeling of tragedy that this this movie does like that same tragic romanticism sir walter scott it's a wonderful romantic poem 
And this has that feeling of it. And I, I really, really do like that. So anyway, they hang out in the, um, in the stables and, you know, Navarre says, okay, I'm going to go to sleep for the night. And he says, you know, don't disturb me. I'm liable to kill you before I know it's you, which of course is partially a lie to keep him the hell out of the, you know, t- noticing that Navarre isn't there, but also it's true. He could in fact kill him, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, considering he's, you know, well, as we're going to learn a wolf. And so, you know, sunset comes and, Philippe is sort of wandering around. He's not sure what he sees. He spots a wolf. He heads back to the farm. And for some reason, they never quite explain. The woodcutter tries to kill him. Maybe so he can get all his money and his goods. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't work so well. The, um, you know, the wolf gets him. He hides in the barn and a woman grabs him. And of course, it's Isabeau played by Michelle Pfeiffer. And she's in this black cloak. And he is freaked out because, of course, he doesn't know where she comes from because she is not like the wife, you know, the woodcutter's wife. She's not some peasant who's lived a hard life. This woman is porcelain. Again, yeah. she, she is the idea of beauty. You know, she wanders out. He begs her, please don't go outside. There's a wolf. He sees her patting the wolf and the wolf is clearly very friendly around her, very calm. When he says, you know, these are magical events, Lord, I beg you not to make you part of it. That is that I believe. <laughs> yes, I, I believe it from a medieval, medieval point of view. I believe it, and I believe it from uh, him talking to God. I believe it. You know, because these are people who like the one thing about medieval Europe. There are a lot of misconceptions about it, but the truth was these are people, especially the lower classes, who the uneducated, who really did believe that magical stuff happened around them, and really didn't want them to. You know. <laughs> So I believe it when he says, I, please don't make me part of this. Please don't wrap me up in this. So I believe that. Anyway, we go to the next day. We see a messenger riding around. I don't think they ever explain what the messenger is doing. I think he's just taking, bringing news that Navarre has been spotted. But the captain of the guard knows that. You know, I just watched this today. How is it? I don't know. That's very loud. Hang on. Oh, yeah. You know what it is? It's the captain. Yeah, it's the scene where the captain of the guard is hurrying back to Aquila, presumably to tell the bishop Navarre is back. Yeah. Yeah. So then Philippe and Navarre are walking through the forest. It's misty. He says, you know, we're not going to travel today. Get some rest. You know, Philippe tells him about the woman. Just, you know, have you, you know, did you speak to her? There was more. There was a woman like fine porcelain with deep blue eyes, almost like a bird's. And her voice, the dulcet tones of an angel. She spoke. What did she say? I asked her if I was dreaming. She said I was. Hmm. I'm not insane. You must believe me when I tell you these things. No, I believe you. I believe in dreams. I see. This lady, does she perhaps have a name? Not that she mentioned. Why? Well, she might wander into my dreams. Wouldn't it be nice if I could call her by name and pretend we met before? Which I think is really neat, especially once you realize, of course, he knows who this woman is. I really like that. It's it's like he's having a romantic conversation with the woman he loves and she's there, yet she's not. Yeah. You know, because, of course, he's got this hawk who's following him around. We failed to mention that the lady hawk involves Navarre having a hawk. 
I'm not sure I was yeah. about that one, but you know, but yeah, I mean, this hawk is following him everywhere. And she helped with that fight too. Yeah, she did help with the fight. I mean, you know, it's it's a hawk, and apparently they use a couple of different hawks, and there's been all sorts of arguments over the years of what kind of hawk it is. Like it freaking matters, but whatever. I the means, the word work with birds of prey. It kind of matters. It doesn't matter to the movie. I mean, if you do that way, it's a hawk. Okay. It's a lady hawk. But it's a special uh, magic curse hawk. Absolutely. Although we don't know that yet. You know, I would love Sorry, to show no, just a hawk. I I would love to show this to someone who had no idea what it was about, who didn't yeah. know in advance there was about a curse. In the meantime, the captain of the guard returns to uh, Aquila and the bishop is watching some woman dance for him. One thing I start to notice is that everyone's an animal. Obviously, Navarre is a wolf. Isabeau is a hawk. Philippe is a mouse. And by the way, obviously, a hawk and a wolf are both predatory, but they don't attack each other. They're in different realms, but they both eat mice. Yes, they, they both do. Eat and if you notice the um, the bishop, He's always just the way they dress him, just the costuming, which I really like. It always makes him look he has this like he has this really long neck, almost like he's a flamingo or a goose or something. And of or course, that too, yeah, like some sort of animal. And even you know later when we see the Alfred Molina's character, the the hunter, he looks like a bear or a wolf or something, some sort of yeah, coyote animal. or something. Coyote, like you know, he's all of course he's covered in wolf pelts. Everyone is an animal in this movie. Uh, which I, I really like. So anyway, the captain of the guard tells the bishop who's back. He says, you know, Navarre is back. And he, he points out there is a woman who travels with him, but only by night. If she dies, your replacement will preside over your execution, which is one of the best threats I've heard in a movie in a long time. Yeah. The criminal Gaston travels with him. My men are combing the woods. And the hawk. Your grace? Must be a hawk. A spirited hawk. This hawk is not to be harmed. Is that understood? You see, the day she dies, a new captain of the guard will preside at your execution. Like, it's just, it's just so matter of fact, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, I will he have your... He his pants a little at first, and then he lays down the threats. Yeah, like, at first he's sort of freaking out because, yeah, he's not happy to hear Navarre's back. But I get the impression he's not surprised. He literally, we'll learn later, he literally makes a deal with the devil. And those yeah. always go super well. And he's, I mean, he's a bishop. He's got to know that if you make a deal with, you know, Satan, there's a catch. Yeah, they don't turn and, out well. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, he's got to know how that curse can be broken. And he's not a dumb man. He's got to know that the eclipse is coming. By that point, I think I'm pretty sure monks had been able to figure out, like so there were monks out there who could figure out when an eclipse was coming, I think some of them had figured it out. Oh, yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. It's been a long time since I studied that. But there were people who freaked out. Like It was still a mystical event to these people, but a learned man would know better. So, yeah. But like you, know, like you, like you said in the last one, in, in, in Willow, why do they never... Like, there's this curse. I know how it's broken. Why do they always misinterpret that? Like, yeah. a, a baby girl will be born that will destroy your power. It's not might, it's will. <laughs> it's will, yeah. 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 <laughs> they're like, yeah, oh, well, it's... then I have to kill it. It's like, well, the act of trying to kill it is what destroyed you. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. I, I'm not sure if that's here. If that's the case here, like, because it's not really a prophecy. He makes a deal with the devil. Um, yeah. But again, if anyone should know that making a deal with the devil never goes well for the for the dude, it should be like, I don't know, a bishop of Rome. Like, you, you know, like, like a bishop of the Roman know, Catholic Church. Can't study think history. That, how often have they screwed that up? Like high, high ranking bishops they, well, 
in the Middle Ages did not score high points for for making good choices. No, for for knowing their jobs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's it's not an uncommon thing because it was quite common for like the king to appoint his younger brother the bishop, so he wouldn't have to worry about him deposing him. Hell, there was a there was a pope who appointed one of his sons, yes, as the uh, the Borgias. They he he appointed one son the head of the army. Uh, the, the papal army back when they had one, and he appointed his other son a cardinal, uh, who was not even an ordained priest. So, how many sons did this pope have? He had a bunch, a bunch of he had at least three sons and uh, and a daughter. He was kind of the Trump of of popes, and uh, yeah, okay, he commissioned the building of the Sistine Chapel. He wasn't around for its. Uh, oh. uh, he was also poisoned by an apple, and he was the bad guy in uh, Assassin's Creed 2 and Assassin's Creed Brotherhood, but that's another matter. Um, yeah, pretty sure he wasn't a Templar seeking the Apple of Eden, but whatever. This guy is not quite that bad, but again, it's it's interesting. Like Bab Morda from Willow, he knows he's fucked, but he he just keeps moving forward. I'm waiting for a movie that, you know, where the bad guy realizes he's screwed and and his actions are based on the idea that he's trying to not stop the prophecy, but avoid the, yeah. the, 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 the damage, but that's not this Bishop, but that's okay. Because this Bishop's pretty cool. Uh, Step okay, down, take cool, the pension, but, go to a monastery. Yeah, pretty much. Of course, ironically, like there's no, like this guy is committed, right? Like the story that'll be told later is that he pursued these lovers. Like he, he wasn't willing to just go, ah, shit, I lost her. Like he pursues them. He yeah. encounter like, I almost wouldn't mind seeing a prequel movie to this. I wouldn't mind yeah. seeing the scene where, you know, he wanders off into the, you know, into the dark forest and realizing that prayers don't work turns to the other guy. I'd kind of like to see that scene. That would be an interesting, like there's so many bad prequels and sequels from eighties properties. This one I kind of want to see. I mean, that'd be a neat scene. So anyway, we go back to Navarre and Philippe. You know, they spend a lot of time having conversations. He shows you, you know, he talks about this big sword and all the jewels and what they represent. And it's mostly because Philippe was using it to cut uh, twigs. And he says, you know, I like how he puts it. This sword has not known failure in five generations until now because Philippe couldn't even manage to break uh, to break a twig with it, which is kind of funny. There is a silly scene that I don't think works with the rest of the movie here, which is when Philippe tries to walk away and uh, Navarre throws the sword and conveniently hits this super thin tree. And it was so obviously filmed in reverse. Yeah. Like, that there's, they pulled there's it There's a out. few of them. And he goes, oh, okay, I'll stay. I'll go get some firewood or I'll go feed the horse or whatever. It doesn't fit the same as when Philippe keeps calling Goliath a girl. Because he doesn't realize it's a, it's a male horse. Yeah. I'm sorry, in the Middle Ages... If you're in Europe, you're, you're around horses and you know the difference between a male horse and a female horse, especially when you're really short and the horse is really tall. You're not going to miss the gear. Yeah, you you're going to notice like, that. Yeah. But, you know, it, it's one of those things. It's a chance to show that Philippe is clueless like we are, but it doesn't work. Just like Navarre driving home the point, you're stuck with me by throwing the sword and barely missing him. But that's a trope, right? throwing the knife and it going, you know, going into the wall right beside your head or, you know, yeah. or if you're sitting on the floor, they throw it and it lands right between your legs, just short of your balls. It's the same silly trope. I saw yep. it twice last night because unfortunately I watched all three John Wick movies. That's time I never get back, by the way. Sorry. Those movies. Yeah. Those movies just get worse. I love the first one and they just get worse. 
Anyway, we go back to the night. We encounter Isabeau again. This time she's just trying to catch a uh, a rabbit. What we discover is Navarre has tied Philippe to a, a tree and he talks her into letting him go and he escapes and she's like, listen. Thank you very much, my lady. Tell the captain he ties a wicked knot. Oh. He's gonna kill me. And then inexplicably the next morning they capture the guards capture Philippe. There's a fight. The hawk is hit by a crossbow bolt. Var is also stabbed, I think. Uh, was he stabbed? That no, they're both they're both arrows because he pulls it out. Right. Yeah, but they're both but they're both injured. Yeah. Navarre, of course, realizes he can't ride well enough, so he puts Philippe on the horse and he he rides off to go find a ruined castle. He comes across, you know, this ruined castle and he calls up and the you know this drunk priest who's we'll learn is imperious he says you know i've got this wounded hawk he says oh excellent i'm starving bring him up we'll dine together it's like no it belongs to navarre and he goes, oh no bring him up bring him up he takes the hawk he log you know he goes into a into a bard and says we have to wait and we don't know why well we can guess as we figured it out <laughs> and you know philippe goes back into the bard and he sees isabeau lying there and of course she's got the arrow in her and that's where it clicks for him yeah well, the priest she- is out gathering herbs and crap that he needs to take care of her yeah because the writer watched a lot of you know romeo and juliet because that's what that's what the fathers do there right they gather um like that's that's uh the thought that's the uh, priest's opening soliloquy it's about the importance of uh of herbs but anyway it's a really good scene where imperious pulls the arrow from her i really believed it it was very very well 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 I mean, yes and no. Like, I believe she was in pain. It wasn't realistic, but it was believable, if you, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And yeah, f- f- for the 80s, it was pretty good. Yeah. The, what I liked about the scene, though, was that she is in, she's in stress and she's writhing about because obviously she's in pain because, you know, she's got a, a crossbow bolt in her shoulder. And at the same time, it cuts back and forth between her and the bishop, who is writhing in what is clearly a, uh, a nightmare. And the minute the arrow is pulled, she screams and he wakes up screaming. The doors open and he is frightened by his guard. But what we see is the silhouette of the cross, like he's frightened by the cross. And that's where we meet Alfred Molina's character, whose name I don't remember. It was like Caesar or something, wasn't it? Cesar. Yeah, Cesar. Cesar, yeah, that's... And it's Alfred Molina, and it's clear he's a wolf hunter. Then we go back to Imperius. Brutal need of a dentist. Yeah, well, that would have been true of literally everyone (laughs) until the mid-1900s, but yeah. I think your favorite line comes up here shortly, when uh, when he discovers her in bed with the matching wound. Then, well, we've already gone past it, but is that where she says it? That's where he says it, yeah. Navarre, is he? He's fine. He's just fine, my lady. There was a terrible battle. Navarre fought like a lion. The hawk... The hawk... was struck. You know that, don't you? Are you flesh? Or are you spirit? I am sorrow. 
It's a really good line. It is. You know, once the arrow is pulled and, and she's sorted out, Imperius tells the story. You know, he talks of, and what I like about it is, is, you know, when he tells the story that, you know, Isabeau's father, who was a, I don't even think they really say whether he's a good man or a bad man, but he goes and he dies in the Holy Land. And so she comes to live at, in Aquila and the bishop falls in love with her, which is, you know, a problem. And, uh, but it, it's, you know, everyone, of course, falls in love with her. But the reality is she's fallen in love with the captain of the guard, Etienne Navarre. And um, actually, you know what? I'm going to let him tell the story. Yeah. They were betrayed. They shared the same confessor, a weak and foolish priest. And one day, in a drunken confession to his superior, he committed a mortal sin. He revealed the lover's secret vows to the bishop. What I like is he never actually says he was the priest who betrayed them. No, but it's pretty clear that he is. It is, but I like that it's never said. Because they don't have to be that on the nose about it. Yeah. And it only is confirmed for the, you know, the less, uh, less attentive audience members when uh, Philippe asks them, do they know you betrayed them? Yeah. Do they know you're the you one? Yeah. yeah. But I like that he never says it. In some ways, believe it or not, this reminds me, the, the confession scene reminds me of, oh, God, help me, Star Trek V, when Cybok turns his attention to McCoy and the death of his father. I don't know what it is when McCoy is forced to admit that he, he he euthanized his father and then they found a cure like six months later. I don't know why, but the scene, it's got that same feeling of someone for the first time being forced to admit what they've done. Like, I get the impression this is the first time Imperius has told anyone what he did and why, why you know, that he is, look, he is the, he is the reason that a bishop turn to Satan. I mean, obviously he was a bad guy to begin with, but his confession creates this, this whole chain of events, the flight from Aquila, the deal with the devil, this curse where he is a wolf by night. She is a hawk by day. And for a brief second at sunrise and sunset, they can see each other, but they can't touch. They never quite have the time. That, that, that was one of those good lines that lifted above. It was, um, again, it was, and it was Philippe that says it, uh, together forever, forever apart. Forever together apart. Yeah. I, something like that. Yeah. This scene was clearly written by the script doctor. Yeah. You start to see the difference between the script doctor's work and the other screenwriter's work. Have you ever seen Crimson Tide? Mm, Don't think so. Good submarine movie with Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman. The, The dialogue is a cut above because... Quentin Tarantino was the script doctor, so he's not, he's uncredited. You can tell what he did was the dialogue because the dialogue is so smart and it's got that witty, you know, like there's a comic book reference in there and there's, you know, things you wouldn't expect. And that's what made the dialogue. So like you could tell the dialogue and the action are not always connected because one guy came in and cleaned up all the dialogue. And here I'm guessing what he did is he chose the scenes that needed the most work and he really punched them up. And I like that. Like, I almost wish they had said, wow, that's really great. How about we just give you this script, come back in six months and, you know, like rewrite the script for us. Um, yeah. Can you just fix the whole thing, know? please? Yeah. Well, it, it turns out that uh, Richard Donner have been trying to get the script 
I was reading Wikipedia, he tried to get the script done for years and he couldn't find funding for it. You know, when a movie has trouble, like when a director has trouble getting a movie made, especially when you've done Superman and, and you know, and these other movies, you have to maybe ask yourself why. You know yeah. what I mean? And it's like What's he never asked himself why. Yeah. yeah, what what is it that's turning people off? And I can't help but think that if this guy, you know, Peoples had just rewritten the whole thing, he would have had way less trouble. But I don't know what point the script doctor was brought in. Was that after he sold the, you know, he sold the idea and found the funding or what? I don't know. But because if, uh, if the whole movie had been this this good, yeah, it might have broke even. Like, because it. It's not yeah. a bad idea for a story. No, it's, it's really, really not. You know, I think like, I like this movie, but most it doesn't of it always... is just eighties cheese and here and there. Yeah, like this scene, it's really, really good. Yeah, it really, the, the dialogue is really a cut above. You know what the problem is? If you look at the eighties, there's so many movies like this. We've done a bunch of them: Princess Bride, Willow, Conan the Barbarian, Conan the Destroyer, and a zillion bad imitators. All these sword movies, sword and sorcery of various types, because Star Wars was popular and Indiana Jones was popular. And people started to realize, wow, we can spend a lot of money on kiddie movies. So this probably seemed like just another one of those. And you know what? This isn't a kid's movie. I mean, it's not like kids can't watch it. I watched it when I was, well, in 1985 or what was it, 1985? Yeah, so I was like nine years old when this movie came out. I was probably 10 when I saw it. And I love this movie. I mean, yeah, I'm weird. But, you know, I don't know. I don't know anyone who didn't, you know, my age group who didn't at least enjoy watching it one time on Super Channel or renting it. But there were so many damn movies like this that I'm not surprised it got lost in the shuffle. Yeah. Well, you know? I mean. I didn't realize I had seen it until now. Like, oh, <laughs> this one, yeah. Yeah. It's just one of those movies that sort of came and went, and it doesn't get a lot of play anymore, which is really too bad. I think a lot of it is just the music is so damn bad uh, that it's hard to take it seriously when you see that opening sequence. You go, what the hell is this? Is it like from an 80s primetime kids show or something? Like, I don't know. Anyway, we go back to the bishop. It's pretty clear, you know, the bishop is talking with Cesar and... It's interesting because it's the first attempt, or the first uh, vision we get, or the first hint we get. Let's try that again. It's the first hint we get that the the staff the bishop has is essentially a weapon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, it's, a, it's pointy at the end if he takes the thing off. Yeah, it's. And I find that interesting that you know, at this point we know what the bishop is. He's he's a fallen he's a fallen holy man. He's he's signed well, again. He signed a deal with the devil. That never it's goes well. Choice. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's a choice. I would like to have seen a little more dialogue around that. Like him talking about the fact that he made the choice. Because, of course, that's what makes drama around the idea of the devil so compelling. Is that people choose it. He never makes anyone do anything. That's what's so insidious about him. You have to yeah. choose it. Um, yeah. Anyway, the next day comes. Isabeau is healed. That was one thing I wanted to mention. So in the in the, in the escape from the monastery ruin whatever, like in one scene he's finding this injured woman and he's saying no no don't move you'll start to bleed again. Mm-hmm. Three scenes later, like after the drunk yeah. priest tells their story, he's dangling her out a window by the arm. Yeah, you know the impression it's I just got. Fine. 
the impression I got is she's not fine until she changes back into human the next day. That's the impression I got that the transition heals you. Yeah, I got that too. She was still injured because of course what happens next is the the guards show up because of course at this point, the Bishop has figured out what the hell's going on. So he knows to go hunt down Imperius, right? Who he probably banished there. He like Imperius is probably there because the Bishop told him go there or at least get out of the city. And there's this chase scene, which is, to me, a chilling scene. I I actually got chills when I watched it, that essentially there's a a chase that leads to a tower on this, uh, you know, on this castle. Like, there's some funny scenes, you know, only walk on the left of the bridge and one guy doesn't. And then I didn't think that scene fit really well. It's like some hijinks, ha ha, the guard fell in the water. But the chase leads Philippe and Isabeau to the top of this tower and... He accidentally, tri- uh, he, he sort of dodges a, a sword and knocks her off the tower and she's holding, you know, she's hanging by a finger and he drops her and she starts screaming just as the sun comes up and her screams become a hawk's cry and she survives the fall because she's able to fly away. When she screamed, every hair on the back of my neck stood out. I'm not sure about you. Yeah, it freaked me out because it was a terrifying scream. There must have been some post-production work in there. Yeah. Because I've never... Because it's a great effect. Oh, yeah. I wasn't super worried about it because they kept cutting to the horizon. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know. The sun's going to set. She's going to fly away. It's fine. But yeah, you're right. That that scream was um, believable. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I found it chilling, mostly because it becomes the hawk and, you know, flies away. And then he is, you know, he's rescued because he hides by hanging over the side and a guard tries to, you know, kill Philippe. And, you know, the crossbow bolt comes because at this point, Navarre has gotten dressed again and, you know, caught up and whatever. Okay. Rescuing Uh, Philippe with a crossbow is not a thing. We'll ignore the fact that he left Philippe to ride for hours while he hung out in the forest and in the... Two minutes since sunrise, he's managed to make his way back to his clothes, get dressed, get on Goliath, and ride made those many hours. That doesn't work 80s, all that well, 80s. but... It's okay. 80s. 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 Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's okay. It's just silly, um, but whatever. Uh, he encounters Tiberius, who he's pretty disgusted with, and that's where we start to realize what's going on. That Navarre intends to return to Aquila and kill the bishop, but he's been waiting two years to do this. And he needs, and the whole point is he needs Philippe to get him back into, into the castle. And Tiberius says, well, I figured it out. There will be a night without day, which of course we realize is an eclipse, but Navarre doesn't want to hear it. What's that? Imperious. You're saying Tiberius. Tiberius. It's imperious. Drunken priest, whatever. Uh, So yeah, Imperius is saying, you know, there's a way to fix this. And Navarre doesn't want to hear it. Like at this point, after two years of, let's be honest, hell, 
Mm. <laughs> Two years of hell. He has decided he's going to end it by killing the bishop. So Philippe tells the priest, you know, follow behind us. Great. They ride on. I thought it was cool that he and, got the uh, solution to the curse after he confessed that. Like he confesses his betrayal of them to yeah. Philippe. And that yeah. night he's given the answer to the curse. And the next is day, it that he's because, given it that night, or is it that? He, sorry, go ahead. I don't know. Beats me, man. They they weren't super clear about it, but he's. It's after his confession that he gets the answer. See, he I thought it. he'd already had it, but he didn't know where to find Navarre and didn't think Navarre would speak to him. And I'm not sure. Oh yeah, I don't see. Oh, they're, they're not clear about it. Yeah, they're yeah. not really clear about it. But in any case, that night they're in a barn. Isabeau. She's fine now, but she, now she's back to human form and there's no injury. There's some silliness about, oh, don't worry, I won't watch you change. And it's like, yeah, okay, whatever. Uh, they dance in the barn, which is pretty cool. That was a nice little scene. Yeah, it was a nice touch. They come out of the, the barn to head over to the pub. And that's where they come across Cesar and all of these wolf pelts. And he screamed, Isabeau, get back. And, you know, Isabeau, like, uh-oh, it's out. He rides on. There's that great, that's that great threat. You'll find your hand on the ground beside your body or beside your head or something like that. <laughs> yeah. If you lay one hand on it. In the meantime, he rides off and Isabeau gets on Goliath and rides off clearly to stop him from laying more traps. There's some confusion and it ends with Cesar's head in a trap. So that's that. The next day, Lady Hawk, because that's what he's calling her now. That's where he comes with the term. She lands on Philippe's arm instead of Navarre's, and he's a little surprised by that, um, which is kind of funny. So yeah, so that night, Tiberius catches up, and they decide to dig a wolf trap, you know, to, to capture Navarre so they can bring the two of them to the bishop, because the whole idea here is that if the bishop, you know, on a day without night, a night without day, an eclipse, they'll both be in their human form, and if the bishop can see the two of them together, the curse is lifted. So the idea is to capture Navarre, but that goes wrong because Navarre approaches them across a frozen lake and falls oh, in. Yeah. What's that? <laughs> from the wrong direction. Yeah, he comes in from the wrong direction. He almost drowns. They fight to get him out. He slashes up. The, the, the wolf slashes up Philip's back pretty bad. They pass out the next day. It's interesting because there's this brief moment. It's the first time they've actually been in each other's presence at a sun, sunrise or sunset. And we get to see the two of them change and try and reach out for each other but they can't and navarre screams and it's a wolf scream i really like it there's a really good use of screaming in this movie which sounds weird but yeah, no, you're right though they they the same thing like he gives out this 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 wolf's scream like he's angry because he's so close to touching Isabeau. And of course he can't. What I do love is they never try and show the change. No, that was nice. They used the yeah. eyes to show the change. That was cool. Yeah. Like the, yeah, the, the pupils change, but I mean, can you imagine, remember the, the change from wolf to human when evil Ed is stabbed in fright night and how long and laborious it was. Can you imagine if they'd done that here? Oh, yeah. If they had tried to make a transition. Now, it's entirely possible that Richard Donner tried tried this, like the special effect, and just didn't like what he saw. But, of course, movies in this time, where you're talking about The Thing or, or Fright Night, these sorts of body horror effects were the thing to do. Thank God he didn't want to, because that would have ruined this film right then yeah. and there, I think. 
Um, yeah, it would have killed the poetry. Yeah, yeah it, it becomes a creature feature at that point. I'm not interested. In any case, this is where Tib- you know, Tib- <sighs> Imperius, not Tiberius, Imperius reveals himself to Navarre and they convince him to at least go along with the plan a little bit. He says, I'll show you how to cage a wolf. That night, they ride into the city with... They pretend they lost his sword, too, right? That's right. I forget why that was. They're Bottom trying to delay him by a day. They need they need him to wait uh, one more day for the eclipse, and he just wants to go right. kill again. Right, right. That's right. Um, so they're, yep. No yeah, sword. So Sorry, they sne- fell in the water. Yeah, that's right. Um, so they mm-hmm. sneak into the city with uh, with Navarre as a wolf in a cage, and one of the guards says, well, you know, I... I've always wanted to kill a wolf, and you know, Imperius says it's funny. That's what the bishop said. Go ahead, deprive him. He's a forgiving sort, so of course they <laughs> let him in. You know, that's a very yeah. you've seen the the people sneaking into the the medieval castle with stuff hidden in a cart many times. It's it's a trope of the eighties and nineties. The one that pops into my mind is them sneaking in, into the castle in the uh, Kevin Costner Robin Hood. It popped into my head as I was watching it where he says, forgive my leprous friend here. Oh, is that your finger? Like it's, it's always meant to be something funny that freaks out the guards that says, move along, move along. You know, of course we saw it in star Wars. These aren't the droids you're looking for. It's the same shit, you know, <laughs> do Robin Hood. It's a 1992 movie. Oh, never mind. It's, it's yeah. It's pushing our luck a little bit, but someday when we run out of eighties movies, you know, a hundred years from now, we're um, doing a feature on worst accents ever. That's why he gave up on it halfway through the movie. But yeah, yeah. (laughs) Anyway, anyway. Imperius hides with the hawk. And the idea is that if you hear the bells toll at noon, it will mean that uh, Navarre has failed to kill the bishop. So go ahead and, you know, cut the hawk's throat. Philippe sneaks in through the through the sewers. The idea being that he will sneak into the uh, into the church and unlock the doors so Navarre can get in. And he does that mostly by knocking the doors in. With Goliath, so it doesn't really matter that. Well, he did have to get the lock and the bar off. Yeah, but he remember he couldn't get the top lock off in time. Um, but Navarre kicks open the door with Goliath. Mm. Yeah, Goliath is um, a good horse. Yeah, uh, we we did miss a scene where Navarre enters the city that the guards try and stop him, and then they back off. He says, "You know, from one who was your captain, and God willing, will be again. Please let me pass." And the troops let him pass because yeah, it's clear that. Some of he them do, to, yeah. He has to kick the new commanders, but well, one of them it, it is sort of a junior commander, but the actual captain of the guard, remember, is in the church. Oh, that's right. With, yeah. with his most loyal men, who you know, there's a fight. He fights his way, like he puts on his captain's hat. Uh, he fights his way through all of these these guards. It's very, you know, it's a whatever. It's some boring sword fights. What I love is the bishop just stands there because he's just nowhere he can go. Where's yeah. he going to escape to? He doesn't even try. He stands there and he watches. And I love the way John Wood is in this scene. He plays the bishop. He just stands there and glares. It's like yeah. he realizes, ah, oh, shit, this was the fine print I didn't read. It's like he, he realizes he's been had by the devil. And so he's just sort of standing there defiantly because what else is he going to do? He can't flee. Yeah. Um, oh, on a bang, yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure whether he thinks he'll just he'll just ruin it by killing Navarre himself or whatever, but he doesn't try and move. So Navarre kills everyone. There's a silly sword fight with the captain, whatever he kills him. I like the horse work. Like again, the horses that are really, really well trained. Yeah, the way he sort of prances and yeah. it's a big horse. I don't sure what kind of horse it is, but it's not it ain't an Arabian stallion, it's a 
big beefy the, horse. Big horse. And the um the white one actually lays down at that. It's hard to do. Yeah, especially because the floor is slippery. Must have been some difficult horse work, but it works well. It's a it's a beautiful scene. I could have done without the fighting because when he confronts the bishop at first, it's exactly the sort of ending I hoped for. It's not violent. He grabs him and he's and, and of course the bell goes and the eclipse starts because the bells have stopped. He assumes Imperius has killed the hawk. But as we see, we're looking at Navarre. So we're, we got the camera's got the bishop's point of view. We see out of focus in the background, Isabel. And she calls out. He looks and he realizes he can break the curse. So he grabs the bishop and he says, look at her. Now look at me. Now look at both of us. And that's it. It's over. And I wish they had stopped right there. I wish they had just cut the next 30 seconds. I wish they had done something to show the curse. Like what? Like, well, the curse, the curse is lifted. I'm like, yeah, okay. Because, because I just the, believe you. Well, Imperius says it. And I think that's all you need. Right. It doesn't need to be like it was in the dark crystal with a lot of magic and stuff whooshing around. It's just, it's done. The sorrow of the bishop is indication enough, at least for me. The look in his eyes, that look of utter defeat. I like that she look, gives him back the uh, leg band. The ties, the leather straps that the, the straps yeah. that the uh, the hawk had. Yeah, that was that was all. Like I, I love the way. Yeah, she confronts him. She doesn't say a word to him. Nope. And I wish they had left it there. I honestly, do. But they don't. And like the bad guy from an eighties and nineties movie who you think is dead, who isn't. He charges at Navarre. Navarre throws the sword and skewers him. His mouse gave him his sword back halfway through the fight. Yeah, I could have done without that. I think it robs the scene of its power that it ends with a jump scare by the bad guy who isn't really dead. Yeah, they could have just rolled the credits after she gave him back her falcon ties. Yeah, yeah. or just, you know, they could have just cut that scene altogether and then had the scene where Philippe and the and Imperius try to sort of sneak away arm in arm because they realize they've accomplished their task and they can go and Navarre and Isabeau call them forward and thank them and, you know, hug them and kiss them in the whole nine yards. But that scene where they kill the Bishop, it's like five seconds, man. If they had just cut it. it out, it would have been a better scene. We don't need to see the Bishop die. We get it. He's going to throw himself off a bridge or he's going to, it's going to sling off like it doesn't it all it doesn't matter. And in fact, I would have I argue it would have been more powerful if he had been allowed to live. Mm. Because what better punishment than for the devil to make him live with the fact that he sold his soul. He got nothing but misery and nightmares out of it. And now he has to live the rest of his life knowing that these two are back together again and that one day he's going to die and he ain't going north. He's going south. You know, that would have been a better ending and it would have taken only a couple of lines of dialogue for Imperius to say that, no, your punishment is your curse. You have to live with this. And then yeah. one day you'll die and the devil will have it. The devil will have his due. It's two or three lines and it would have been better than the 1980s jump scare. And I'm very disappointed that they went with this. But yeah, I mean, if you mean. I've even read books with a curse breaking and re rebounding on the. Yeah. So like he could have turned into a hawk and flown away into obscurity or anything, but what they did. 
yeah, I, again, I would have just left it as you get to live the rest of your life seeing us be this happy. <laughs> you know, you can, you now you can live in that shitty castle. But yeah, and that's just sort of it. Like, that's the end of the film. You know, the one thing I noticed as we go back and talk on this is that this is all about the script doctor, you know, David Webb Peoples versus the other writers. Yeah. And where we both liked it the most, it's clear this is where the script doctor did his work. Yeah. And the parts we don't like, he either didn't have time to touch or chose not to touch or was not paid to touch. We don't know. I almost want to track the dude down and ask him. Yeah. How much of this movie is yours? What I will say is I would love for him to have done the whole damn movie. Yeah. And I think this movie would be much more well regarded. I think this is one of those movies. No one loves it. No one hates it. It's just sort of there. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, I think unless you love, love, love movies from the 80s, you probably don't know it exists. Look, you forgot you had seen it. Yeah, it just it just rolled into because like you said, there's like 400 of them. But this one, I mean, it's notable because, of course, Michelle Pfeiffer went on to be a huge star. Yeah. And so did Matthew Broderick. You know, a couple years later, Matthew Broderick was filming Glory. Yeah. And I think the film he did after this was Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which was a huge hit. Interestingly enough, he gave up on Hollywood, went back to Broadway. He had much more fun. Good yeah. for him. Rutger Hauer never got his due. You know? He was good. Yeah. He was. You ever see the movie he did called Fatherland? No. It takes place in the 1960s where the Nazis won the war in Europe, where the, the, the D-Day landings failed. And the Germans have managed to keep the Russians. Essentially, it's, it's turned into a guerrilla war in the East. And the idea is it's Hitler's 80th birthday and U.S. President Joseph Kennedy, that was actually JFK's father, has come to reopen relations with the Third Reich. And Rutger Hauer plays a former U-boat commander who is now a member of the SS and they're like a police force. And it's cool. about him investigating a bunch of deaths that have to do with covering up the Holocaust. And Neat. it's it's a very, very good movie. He befriends this American reporter, and it, it's just really, really good. And it's the same sort of uh, it's the same sort of performance by Rutger Hauer. He plays like he, he doesn't over-emote, he just sort of he's not like chill, he's not the dude, man, but he's just sort of he's calm. Hmm. Like he's, he's a really good presence. He is. Um, he's a great actor. And you know, one of these days, I'm just going to start going through all of his films. Uh, he's a very good actor. And I think he's the best performance in this film because he's an idea, right? Just like Isabeau. You, you put it perfectly. She's an idea. But so is he of being devoted and being devout and being courageous. And he's all about revenge. This is what he is. The only reason he's interested in Philippe is because Philippe can help him with his revenge and because he can help look after Isabeau. Philippe's a tool and Navarre uses him, but he never has to scream or yell. He never freaks out. He doesn't, he's not frothing mad ever, even when he encounters the people. Like the, at the end, he yells, but mostly he's just being loud. Yeah. Look at us, look at her, look at me. And I like that about Rutger Hauer. But it's the same with her. She screams once or a couple times, like when she sees the, the, the pelts, because she thinks she thinks it might be Navarre. Yeah. And then she screams when she's falling, because of course she does. They only really get loud when it has to do with each other, yeah. you know, their, their situation. But I thought they were great. So having gone through it, what do you think? I, uh, it's it's a 
typical 80s factory adventure story with flashes of brilliance. I I don't know. I liked it. <laughs> it was all right. Sure. You think you'll make your husband watch it? Uh, no. Nah, he's not into that? Probably not. Maybe make your kid watch it in a few years. He'd yeah. Actually, how old's your kid now? Uh, almost nine. Almost nine? So he's not that much younger than when I saw it. But, no, but he's a different he's a different but, kid. But we right? had we had Temple at Doom to to break us in. <laughs> we were um, tougher back then. Yeah, that's true. We had G.I. Joe and Transformers to toughen us up, and then we got to guy watch a guy have his heart ripped out through his, his rib cage. So yeah, so I guess we'll just leave it there. Um this was episode 70, by the way. Oh, um, cool. If you if you don't include the ones, you know, the ones we recorded and had to re-record and uh the, yeah, the, the one we did, the the one we did and we had to spike, we've done a couple of those and so this is actually episode 74, but it'll be number 70 for us. And uh, yeah. And so you and I won't be recording now until the new year. Oh, yeah. And Early hopefully February. in person. Yeah. yeah pro- hopefully in person. And uh, yeah, so there it is. 